Hi guys, welcome back for yet another amazing session here at the IIDA IDA Summit initiative by the Architects Diary, partnered by Blendin. For those who are just joining on, my name is Benita Pushal. I am the Editor-in-Chief of the East India Perspective and I will be your host for Screen 1 for both the days. So yes, I cannot wait to see more. So moving on. Uh, this next speaker that we have, uh, let's give her a small little bit of an introduction. So her name is Mariana Capoeira. She's an architect and urban designer from Portugal. She's worked five years as a senior architectural designer at Zaha Hadid Architects and is currently working as the head and lead design and lead of design for the metaverse company Wilder World. Graduated from the School of Architecture in Lisbon. She moved to London to explore design and technology through the postgraduate course Design Research Laboratory, DRL, at the Architectural Association School, that is AA. Mariana joined Zahara Deed Architects right after graduating from AA School in 2017. She was a part of the competition cluster for about five years and the designer of winning projects such as the Navi Mumbai Airport, Western Sydney Airport, Exhibition Centre Beijing, their competition and completion of Tarsi in Shazen. Currently, Mariana has jumped to the challenge of designing the metaverse, joining Wilder World as the head and lead of the MetaFutures era. But I'm pretty sure you would like to hear more about her, but definitely that has to be from the boss's mouth. So yes, please, let, let's welcome Mariana to the floor. Hi, Vineta. Thank you so much for your introduction. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for your invitation. So let's get started and um, let's get my presentation on. Okay. So exactly like you said, I am Mariana Cabogara. I am uh, the director of uh, Metaverse uh, Department with Wilder World. I have been a senior architectural uh, designer and, and uh, at Zaha did architects for five years. And I'm Portuguese. I'm also um, big in the academic world. I'm, I'm, I've been a teacher for six years now, seven years now, and I usually teach a software called Maya. And recently, I am doing Maya and Unreal for Metaverse courses. Okay, so today and and since we are talking about the influence of technology in architecture, uh, which is exactly what my career has been so far. I'm going to walk you through um, the beginning of my, um, let's say, my career started in, in school. So the beginning of everything when I was a student in Portugal, why I decided to go to London, which kind of course I did in London that was extremely technological. This led me to Zaha and how after Zaha I decided to leave for a metaverse company. Okay, so I'm going to start from um, the academic times. I was a student for a very long time. Uh, I usually say that I don't recommend this to any student. Um, it's not the recipe for success. That's really important that you understand that. But um, when I was in Portugal and I was studying, I realized that there was something missing. So I continued studying in other countries. So I studied in Portugal for five years. I studied in Milano for, in Italy for one year. And then I studied in London for two years. So in the end, I did uh, more or less eight years or seven years of school. Uh, again, I don't recommend this, but I think I, I was left a bit with no choice. So when I was in Portugal and I was a student, so in my early 20s, um, I was a bit of a different student from the rest of the, the people from my classmates, uh, the rest of my classmates. I was a little bit more plastic. Uh, I believed in form, especially I, I didn't believe in, in form for the sake of form. I believe that form has a responsibility in the context and form is as important as uh, material and as texture. Uh, form has a, a part, is part of our culture, of architecture is part of our city. So I was very much around um, evolution and iteration of form and, and topo uh, topology. Obviously, um, I was in a school that was extremely, let's say, modernist in the sense that I was very much in the 60s and, and, and with the 70s from Nicole and the studies from that time, so almost 100 years ago. Um, but it was a school that was very much fixated in that. So everything I was doing was extremely different. And that came with some very hard times, obviously. And um, it obviously gave me this uh, responsibility of having to work a bit more than everyone else 
to explain why I was doing different, which is kind of uh, a very hard job to do. So when I finished my master's, my first master's in Lisbon, um, what happens when you finish a master? You have the same, a very similar panorama to India, actually, uh, and paid and internships. So after you study six years, you're going to work for free, which was kind of revolting for me. Um, I was also going to, the kind of offices that you have in Portugal are very small. Um, so they don't do very big scales as well. They do mostly housing and small houses and very boxy houses. And at the same time, there's also this fixation of uh, refurbishment of the old city and turning them into new, which was something that I was actually pretty much against. So this was the panorama after I finished when I was 24. And I decided that um, this had nothing to do with me and my identity as an architect. So I had no other option but to leave uh, countries and to find um, a practice and especially to find a course that would teach me how to do design in architecture because I knew I was a designer without really knowing that this is the term for it. Um, but I didn't have the skills, I didn't have the tools, that I was not close to any technological uh, mean that would allow me to understand the kind of architecture that I really thought that made sense that was nothing like this. So I started looking for other schools and um, for postgrads or or even for PhDs because I had already a master. And then I saw uh, this school called the Architectural Association in London. And it was a school where Zaha had been a student before, Rem Kula, Cedric Price, Bernard Schumi, Stephen Hall, like all of these people, they had been students in this school before. So I thought that maybe that was something there. Maybe there was another way of thinking, another another practice. So I decided to go for an open day. Uh, open days are extremely important when you're looking for an international school. Uh, they usually open the school to foreigns and, and to new students, and they explain you all the courses that they are doing. So you, you get more or less a good overview of what's happening in the school. In this same, same day, so the same day that the school was doing this open day, um, there was a final presentation of a very important post-graduation course that I didn't know about. And everyone was running to this auditorium and um, I could only see the people running to the auditorium and there was a big fuss. Uh, the auditorium was full, full and in darkness. And then I decided to walk in and when I walked in, I was faced with these, with this overwhelming number of panels and design and renders and animations and, and with theories behind design. And Zaha is usually a jury there. Patrick Schumacher is a is the head of one of the studios. So everyone was watching this presentation. So I decided to stay. And this uh, course is called Design Research Laboratory in London, um, in the Architectural Association, where Zaha is a jury and Patrick Schumacher is um, a teacher. So when I stayed and when I heard them talking, everything they were saying, especially the theory part, was exactly uh, very much in sync with what I thought and what I was trying to explain back in my country. but. Uh, 10, 10, 10 steps ahead, obviously. Um, so I thought this is the, the right place. And and um, little did I know that in two years, I'll be the one presenting on that auditorium with the same amount of panels and with the same Jerry, except for Zaha, because uh, she died in, in the process. So I decided I'm going to join uh, DRL. I went back home and, and I said, I'm going to join. This is an extremely technological course. Uh, so as the name uh, says it's design research laboratory. So you are researching design in architecture. You go back in history of technology, especially of CAD, okay? So computer aid design. You start with computer aid design, and then you go through algorithms. You, you go through all of these softwares that help design and enhance, enhance design and encourage design. So I had to learn all of these softwares from scratch at the DRL, okay? Uh, it's six months learning all of these softwares. So from Grasshopper, 3ds Max, C++, Processing, Rhino, Unity, Maya, V-Ray, you have six months to learn this with them. And then you start a studio, and that's um, the most important part about the RL. You start the studio and you start a very important research, and a kind of theme for this research is very much based on the studio. So you have the studio that is from uh, Theodore Spiropoulos. He's the actually the head, the director of the RL. And uh, it's a studio that is a little bit more around assembly, around prototyping, around human behavior, 
And then you have the studio of Shaja Bhushan, uh, which I don't know if you know him, but he's, uh, extre- he's incredible. And Alicia Nomad as well. And they do uh, robotic fabrication, but most importantly, they prepare geometry for robotic fabrication. And then you have Patrick Schumacher studio and Patrick's studio is a little bit more, um, a bit more like the culture of an office, uh, in this case of Zaha office. So it's extremely design driven. It has a thesis behind though. So obviously I picked Patrick Schumacher studio, um, because of parametricism. So then I started with like a whole year of, for this thesis, uh, you work obviously in teams, there's no individual work, especially not in architecture. So, uh, I work with Juan Carlos and, and Nicolas Tornero, uh, from Chile, Juan from Bogota, and we worked together for a whole year, extremely intense year. Our thesis is about exoskeletons, okay, which is something that maybe you have seen before. Um, usually, you know, they are coming back at the design for the design trends. But exoskeleton is basically a technique that you use to um, take the structure from inside of the towers and place them outside on the perimeter of the tower. So when you do this, uh, and we did it uh, through something called topology optimization, when you do this, you kind of liberate the tower from the interior of the tower, from columns and from cores. So that's the whole point of creating exoskeletons in towers. And that was our uh, thesis. It was a very long super hard working thesis and then in the end we presented in this big auditorium and um as as we finished obviously i spoke with patrick uh zaha was my plan a when when i was doing drl i never thought about joining zaha i'm, I'm from a very uh, small country and a very humble environment so we barely uh, think about big offices but when i was at the drl it made sense it actually became my plan a there was no plan b so I spoke with Patrick and Patrick recommended me to uh, the competition cluster. Um, I had an interview with the director of the competition cluster and then uh, I was accepted and I joined Zaha Hadid Architects in 2017. So I joined a very peculiar department, a very uh, special department that is called the Z cluster. So clusters is usually the term used for, uh, let's say departments because the office is really big. I think they are 500 at this point and they need to be split in uh, clusters or departments. So you have cluster one, cluster two, cluster three, so on. But there's one special cluster called the Zaha cluster. So this cluster was the last cluster that, uh, this cluster was the last cluster that Zaha created. Um, she created, uh, I think 15 years ago or something. And basically it's called Zaha cluster because it's the cluster that she would come and see the projects from, um, this cluster is usually, it, its point is basically to develop design and, and competitions with an extremely design driven solution. Uh, competitions are usually the biggest ones. So the ones against, I don't know, Foster's OMA or, or MED or all these kind of uh, offices that run for very specific competitions and Zaha cluster was, is. Uh, assigned to be part of the mega competitions. As you can imagine, in a very big firm and a successful firm, not all projects look like this, okay? That's something that it's important to understand, especially business side, uh, business-wise. Not all projects need to be with extra budget and with extra design. Uh, the ones that don't have extra budgets and extra design, you don't see them. Maybe I don't even see them, they are not published. But the ones that are published usually come from this cluster, okay? It's 30 people. Now I think it's 40 people. And they all have one very important thing in common, which is the technology that they are running behind. It's a software called Maya from Autodesk. Okay, so Maya from Autodesk is one of the most uh, responsible tools for the DNA of Zaha design. And it's a software that everyone who works at Zaha, um, Zaha cluster uh, needs to have and it's to kind of uh, manage quite proficiently. So what are the principles of Maya? I'm going to run them like super quickly, uh, but it's important that you see how different this is from your traditional 3D modeling software, not like Rhino. Uh, so Maya works a little bit similarly to uh, 3ds Max. It works as an object mode, face mode, edge modes, and vertex mode. So everything that you do revolves around these four components. All the transformations are about these four components. Then Maya has one very, very important and uh, particular feature in it that Rhino has been trying to 
replicate with Rhinosub-D, but it's very, it's still very, very far away from reaching this. And, and 3ds Max is also kind of trying. But Maya has a very important algorithm in, inside called the Maya Katmukark subdivision. Uh, this is an algorithm that you'll not have to deal with. We don't code. We are definitely not coders. I'm not a coder at all. Uh, that algorithm was built inside of Maya. You don't see the numbers even. You just press one or number three on the keyboard and you change from a non-subdivided mesh to a subdivided mesh that is uh, traditionally smooth. Okay, that's why all the projects that you see are smooth. It's because Maya allows this uh, algorithm to be run on meshes. How do you start? It's very simple, exactly like any other 3D modeling software. You start from a cube, you start from a torus, you start from a plane, and then as you start manipulating the edges, the vertices, and the faces, and you start using the Maya Katmuklark uh, subdivision, you start getting all of these smooth um, projects. Okay, so one of the most common questions that I get whenever I'm creating and whenever I show my work um, and my students is how do you start modeling? How do you start the project? Uh, my job at, at Zaha was for five years to develop as many projects and as many ideas I could for a brief. Okay, so we, we would have a brief, um, in, let's say a tower for office spaces, and it's in a very specific country and the client wants you to kind of bring a little a bit of the culture of the country to the project. My job was to develop as many options as you can imagine for this tower. Okay, so let's say, uh, three options per week. I would, I would design and I would create three options for a tower per week. And then the next week I'll develop three more options than three more, and that was my job. So how do I start creating? I start exactly like everyone else. I start with a very, with an empty screen, usually in 3D. Uh, I always have a very rough and like a uh, very irrelevant sketch on the side, okay? My sketches before I start modeling or I start creating are absolutely non-artistic. They are not meant to be seen. You actually don't show hand sketches, but they are informing my 3D and they are informing um, the steps that I'm going to take to make this three-dimensional, okay? They are informative. They are giving me the clues for how do I actually start this in 3D. And then at some point when I start in 3D, I just take it, uh, I just take the flow and I don't need the sketch anymore. And I'm just going along with the software and my ideas as well. So that's usually how I start. Sometimes I start right ahead in 3D. For example, this case was actually for a class. Um, I start in 3D and then I start sketching as long uh, at the same time that I'm modeling. Uh, sometimes I take some references on sculptures, uh, look for Zaha, of course, uh, but that doesn't fly really well. Uh, the, these references are usually for classes, so references for topologies that actually became typologies in architecture. So um, that's a little bit how it starts. So basically in school, um, basically when I joined, uh, my level of Maya was, let's say two out of five, one out of five, probably because five in a, as a professional environment is very different from what you learn from school, as you know. So I was very much behind and, um, I was the youngest in the, in the cluster and I could understand that I was behind in the software. So I decided to give it like a very big push and to start working over time and working over the weekends to understand how this software works. And I spent a long time learning and pushing for it. So all you can see at, uh, in front of you is just design I was doing on the side and just for me, um, it was just for me to understand the software and the tools and, and to reach the professional level of the software. So when I became pretty good at it, um, and I did because when you really push yourself and you believe that you'll get it, usually you do. So. When I became really good at, at Maya, I decided I'm going to go back to the DRL and I'm going to teach there uh, because the teacher who taught me Maya was actually pretty average, uh, which which is the reason why my level was so average. So I decided, let's, let me go back. I'm going to teach them um, and they will be more ready for the office or uh, they will create their projects with no difficulties, with, without taking the tool as an obstacle. So I went back to the DRL while I was working at Zaha and I uh, taught Maya for uh, three unofficial years and then two official years. So it was almost five years teaching Maya at the DRL. This is some of the results of the students. So you can tell that um, the software has a very big uh, footprint on, on, on the design. Uh, and that's why we recognize this as Zaha because the software is the same and the techniques are very much similar as well. 
And then at some point, and um, with the pandemic as well, uh, I decided I started teaching live for the DRL, and that's when I kind of decided mm, I can also teach live for people outside of the DRL who who are not part of this niche because DRL is still a niche; is only thirty people, and I can actually teach this worldwide to everyone who's interested in in joining. So I started teaching live over the weekends. I started doing a lot of partnerships. Um, with this uh, online um, ac academic kind of uh, platforms. And I really encourage you to take them, to take all of these courses. You have some very good people teaching very good softwares. You have people from Foster teaching you Rhino, people from Zaha teaching you Maya. So I really recommend you to take these courses. I wish I had them when I was a student. So I started doing them over the weekend. I started teaching stuff that they didn't have to be architectural. They, they were just for technique. They were to teach you um, the technology behind, the software behind. And uh, I started doing a lot of projects on my own. Okay, so projects that had no other uh, interest except from teaching, uh, which kind of gave me a very good um, activity outside of, of office, basically. I was having a lot of fun creating this. So I partnership with Live Academy, I partnership with other architects also for stu for classes, for example, the concert hall. And um, I partnership with a very important uh, platform called Futurely. And the, right now we are like a family. And basically I thought I decided, okay, let me teach this uh, Maya properly because I was getting a lot of students and a lot of attraction. So I decided I'm going to teach this from beginners, intermediates and advanced. And I'm going to make this a whole a workshop like a proper studio for my uh, uh, classes so I started for example this was a project for beginners level the second class was already a little bit like you work in an office so you would have to do Maya and Rhino at the same time so it's a little bit more architectural and then the final one was actually interiors which is extremely advanced um, but basically replicates what you do at Zaha for Zaha Classroom for example. So at that period of time, um, I was working mainly at Zaha and I was doing all of, this comp uh, the, all of these classes on the side and I was doing a thousand of projects on both ends. And um, I think from Zaha, it's important to highlight some of the most important competition for me. So I think I've done almost 50 or 30 something competitions. Uh, so it's a lot of projects. There are some of them, most of them I cannot publish, I cannot show because they are not published, uh, obviously. So the ones that were published and the ones that were the most important for me was by far the Navi Mumbai Airport. It was a project where um, I was young, but I did one of the most important features in there, which is this Lotus column that you see. Uh, and and I, it was a kind of my baby. And I worked on it for two years. I think it was two years. We are already making almost construction. And then unfortunately, um, the private client, which was GBK, was kind of involved in some issues, uh, financial issues. So the project had to stop and that it was commissioned to another, to a Canadian company, actually. Another airport that I did that was very important for me was the Sydney airport. And then after Sydney, that we won as well. And it was a very important project that I worked for. And then uh, beside that, the Beijing exhibition was also another project that is going to be built. And it was a competition that I was part of. And it was very important for me as well. By far the most important project and the one that I want to show here today um, is the Shenzhen Tower C. Uh, this was the project that I, I did the competition for um, a year, two years ago. And it's also my last project at Zaha because we won the competition and, the comp and I was invited to stay on the team for completion, so for construction, which I accepted. Obviously, it was a very long time. It was almost a year and a half working on it and then I left. So basically the Shenzhen Tower, uh, it was a competition for Twin Towers for China. Um, it was a competition where MED was running, uh, Foster, SOM, a UN studio. Uh, so all of big, I think was also on it. So all of these, uh, it was a great plot, a great opportunity in the city. So all of these offices were working extra hard for it. And we started in a very small team we were only three or four designers. I was definitely the youngest one, but um, I did a thousand of ideas for this plot. So this plot had a thousand of different towers. And then uh, my first idea was to hug the towers instead of doing two separate 
uh, twin towers to hack them and to uh, turn them into a single tower um a, a bit like um i don't know with a bit more emotion as if they were hugging and then my project leader uh, decided to kind of lift this beautiful wing that you see on the sides and this wing will bring this mega green park inside the tower and that was our first and final solution for the tower then obviously the team grew a lot i became a mega team because the project had a lot of potential at some point and then we submitted the project um i think it was in uh, during december 2020 and then we found out that we won in january and that's when we started a mega team for construction so i was responsible for the first eight floors that you see on the bottom. So they are the public floors. They are mostly the green floors. They are the landscape floors where retail happens. Okay, all of these shops are happening and, and you have a mega shopping mall happening inside with cinemas. So it was extremely challenging. Uh, and this basement that you see that it's actually a big headache, but it was a lot of fun, obviously. And, and it was uh, one of the most important projects in my career. So at the same time, what happened uh, when we were working remotely, um, you start doing a lot of projects on the side as well, especially for the teaching. And then we started talking about this Web3 uh, and, and what Facebook calls the metaverse, but what what's really is called is Web3. And there's you start looking at your projects in a different way and you think maybe the projects that I have been doing outside of work will actually have a purpose and maybe people will actually experience it and travel in it. So I started developing with more and more detail uh, projects that could live on the digital uh, world. Okay, so I started doing both on the side. On one side I was doing Tower C, on the other side I was developing projects that I knew that could have potential for what we call the metaverse. So before I jump into the metaverse, I'm just gonna run through uh, very simple concepts without being too boring for you. Uh, but just so you understand, because I know that it's we are very much in the beginning of this, so it's good to run the basics of uh, the concepts that are behind. So let's imagine the metaverse as more or less a second skin and or, or like a second city, okay? A uh, second layer of our city. They are not separate, uh, at least not for now, but the digital world and the physical world are complementary. So one is uh, belongs to the other one and, and so on. Uh, so basically the metaverse, let's imagine a mega urban fabric, uh, like we know from the real city, they have these little plots. Okay. So the plots that we all know where we have our buildings, these plots inside of metaverse are called NFTs. They are called NFTs because they are non-fungible tokens. They are basically meant to be sold as digital property of land, exactly like we do in the real state of, of, of real cities, let's say physical cities. The metaverse basically gathers all of these NFTs, so all of these plots that can be sold, and um, they create this second fabric of a city that is working in parallel and in simultaneous with our real city. All of this happens in uh, what's more important, way more important than the metaverse is called Web3. Okay, Web3 is what I want you to uh, remember because a metaverse is uh, a trend, is a, a name and a, a definition that will end as soon as meta ends uh, all of this investment on metaverse will probably go down as well but there's one very important thing that is happening and that's called web 3 so right now we are living in the worldwide uh, wide web 2 okay which is like the name says two-dimensional our instagram or our social platforms all of them are two-dimensional right they're two d's and then what's being developed as we talk is web 3 okay which is the three-dimensional space and that's a technology that is has been in progress for, I don't know, uh, a decade. And it's kind of uh, getting prepared to be um, as common as TV, as common as your phone, for example. And it's inside of Web3 that Metaverse happens. And it's not just Metaverse, inside of Web3 you have all of these multi-dimensional spaces that everyone wants to create, uh, create that do, are not called necessarily Metaverse, they're called something else. But they are inside of Web3. One day, which we will not get to see it, uh, we'll probably not be here, there will be a Web4, and Web4 is exactly what we have been calling as the 4K kind of um, living of space, and, and that will be probably the ultimate experience of the digital space. 
what we are aiming for is just a simple Web3, which is spaces where we can walk in and walk out. <laughs> That's Web3. Okay, so basically this is a scenario. This is what we call the metaverse. It's the NFTs inside of a Web3 platform. Okay, there will be multiple metaverses where you can just walk in, walk out, do whatever you want, but it will be still parallel to our real city. Okay, so when this started, and um, it's true that Meta did give like a very good push to this, uh, the company, Meta the company, um, a lot of offices, including Zaha, uh, started receiving commission projects. Okay, so projects from, in this case, Czech Republic uh, president, they were commissioning, commissioning these digital cities. But very important for us architects, they are not just digital cities. Actually, you can see that there's a lot of gravity happening. Uh, typologies are different, but they are not radically different. They are only different. Um, and this is because they are meant for mixed realities. What does this mean? You can get this uh, on a digital platform like Metaverse, but you can also get it built. Okay, it's still buildable to a certain point, And then obviously you'll have to make an extra stretch to actually make it build. Uh, but mixed realities for us architects are very important because that means that your project can be in the metaverse and can actually be built as well. And this is the kind of projects that have been commissioned to offices like Zaha, uh, offices like Big. In parallel, uh, unfortunately, the metaverse is still looking like this, okay? Still looking extremely crappy. And it's being designed by game designers who try to uh, replicate what architecture from architects is which is kind of sad and um, when I saw this so when I understood the potential of metaverse and then I saw what the metaverse really was I was extremely disappointed and that was one of the reasons why I decided to accept the challenge that was given to me and to actually decide to design the metaverse from the perspective of an architect and not um, from the perspective of someone who's trying to uh, replicate uh, architecture. Okay so uh, some offices started doing more or less this, okay, trying to challenge what the metaverse is. So we have like these small platforms that will probably get big really, really quickly, like Voxel Architect Spaces as well. Uh, so BRK is also uh, getting some commissions for this metaverse. They are doing a very interesting, I mean, at this point, the project is not super interesting, but the work that is behind is extremely interesting, which is what kind of typologies are we doing then? in the metaverse, if what kind of culture is it? So how do we travel the space? How does a house look like? How does an office look like? How does a concert hall looks like? Okay, uh, so that's a very interesting work that Bjarke is doing. And then I started looking at my work and I thought that um, it will be very interesting to bring the software Maya and the kind of projects that Maya does into this platform and to challenge architecture to challenge design in a, in a digital world. Okay, so I looked at my projects and I saw for the first time that they might be uh, going somewhere and there's a different future for them, which is extremely interesting. And then um, at some point last year, I was invited to join as the director of a whole era of architecture for a metaverse company called Wilder World. Okay, it's a company that has already 10 years it's a company made of 150 people um, all around the world, India as well. And um, these people are working nonstop. Okay, this office is working nonstop because it's 24 hours around the world. Everyone works remotely. So the, 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 the office doesn't close at some point, the company. And everyone is doing um, from game design uh, to game developers to film design and now architects uh, like me. So what's important to understand what's running behind the metaverse, if you are interested, obviously, as an architect, you can just do your design and then you send your design and you don't care. But I think that it's important that you understand what's the logistic behind. That's exactly like in architecture, we are not engineers, but even we have to understand engineering. We are not, uh, you know, technicals, but we need to understand how, how does a toilet work or how, how does water work or you know, how electricity works. So I, I would encourage you to understand how the metaverse works as the engineering point of view. Okay, so on one side, usually you have the designers and the designers are film designers. For example, I'm working with a lot of people who design Blade Runner, uh, Marvel, uh, Tomb Raider, and now there's a guy coming from Dune, uh, Halo. So you have a lot of people who did film design 
Um, you have obviously the game designers who understand even better what's in engineering behind. And then you start having your architects who um, I think have the responsibility to create the new architecture like we always had the new architecture for this world, okay, for the digital world. I think it's our responsibility. If we don't take it, someone else will take it. Um, and then in parallel, you have your engineers, okay? So the people who do the game design, who do development, uh, Epic Games is extremely important. It has it has a, a, a mega platform in all this. Epic Games is allowing all of these softwares like Unreal to be run uh, for free at this point. And they are the only uh, metaverse that is for free. And they have one of the biggest platforms for you to, to put your architecture inside and to create the game, which is called Unreal Engine. And then you also have Unity, but I, I recommend you to have a look at Unreal. Uh, so basically, this is the mega goal of Wilder. It's to create, um, we can say a metaverse, but it's more like their own platform inside of Web3. It's to create a mega city inspired by Miami, uh, Miami, so they call it Miami. And basically, I was given a whole city, a Miami city, and I am designing every plot, every tower, every building, and I'm also putting up a team with mostly people who designed for Zaha. So there's a very important DNA in there from Zaha Hadid to um, Metaverse. And um, you sell the plots, you sell the projects, and you start having these public events where everyone can go. It's an open world. And the point is to have everyone coming to the city and then coming in and out whenever you want to leave or you just stay for how long you want. And that's basically the whole thing. Obviously, when I saw the potential of this for architects, um, I know there's still a lot of skeptics, but it's unfortunate because it's a mega business. And um, it's not just that. we have We really have the responsibility to say, to the world, how does the next generation of space look like? Okay, because this is what we have been doing since the beginning of civilization. Now that we are shifting to the virtual world, we still have should be the ones saying how does architecture look like. So I started um, a studio for students. Uh, I ran my first studio uh, some months ago. It's called the MetaFluid Studio, where I'm basically teaching exactly this. I'm, I'm not just teaching design. I'm also teaching Maya. But it's very important to teach um, that what's happening behind. Okay, so what's the engineering behind? So Unreal, the game development side. So I'm teaching Maya, I'm teaching Unreal. And the whole point of the studio is for the students to create a mega, mega urban scenario. I didn't include here, but it looks amazing. A mega urban scenario that is uploaded in the virtual environment and you can just walk in and out. It was a studio that did so well and it went, it was ballistic that I have to create a second one, uh, a 2.0, and it's gonna happen in October. Basically, uh, this is my latest project for the metaverse, my personal one. And that's basically it. I think, I think we are ready to start Q&A. So whenever someone has any question, anything you'd like to ask, feel free. Yeah, hi, Mariana. Uh, that was, uh, and I, I am in awe of actually what you showed and explained. So I kind of am still in that aura where I'm still actually, I'm moving around in the metaverse, really trying to imagine the entire of what you just spoke I mean it is absolutely something that uh, you know like I was just talking about it while back only that uh, when we are like doing our own work and everything uh, of course we get to experiment and everything but it's when we interact with uh, such individuals like yourself is when we realize that there is actually like something like, like yeah, yeah I mean we go and watch Iron Man but there might be an Iron Man like I don't know 40 years from now or something so yeah, that might be the reality of tomorrow and it was just amazing to see that so Thanks. yes i'm going to yeah encourage uh, anybody from the audience if you have any questions that you would like to show to us uh you can email them uh at idasummit at gmail.com so yeah we'll just wait for two minutes if there are any questions pop up 
else we will uh, or we can also what we can do is uh, once the questions come across we will try uh, that uh, we get Mariana to you know answer them with a prompt reply yes I think we are getting some questions now just we will just Okay, so the, uh, we have one. Uh, it's I feel it's a little um, okay. Never mind. We should still ask question. Like let's. So, Mariano, what is your take on blockchain technology and metaverse? I think you did answer about the metaverse bit of it. Yeah. I guess what the person wants to know is what is your take on blockchain technology? So blockchain is directly uh, connected to metaverse. The one allows a metaverse to happen. So obviously I'll be, I'll say that I'm completely in for for it. And, uh, I don't think it will end very quickly. I think the foundations are uh, big enough for people to invest on it. So I would obviously encourage you to have a part on blockchain and to start having tokens and um, understand what the crypto world is as well. So uh, that's my take. And I think actually, funny enough, India is extremely developed when it comes to technology and um, they're extremely involved in metaverse. Uh, I, there's a lot of people from India at Wilder. So I would encourage you to join this as well, especially if you know people who are already in there. Okay. Uh, are there any simpler softwares for creating such amazing scale building? It's, just, it's a student who is asking this. So yeah. apart from Mana, is I think yeah, of course, of course you have like simpler um, software. So Maya is is like a fluid software uh, that is a little bit more complex because it's also architectural in the sense that it works in meters, is a bit more accurate as well. So it comes as a, a bit more complex. That for example, the software that I'm gonna suggest to you, which is also a, a software that is for free, that is called Blender. So Blender is for free. It also it's also about fluid architecture and fluid not architecture. Okay, fluid forms and uh, organic forms. That's what Blender does. But it's it's not accurate. It's not it doesn't have measurements. So it's not really ar an architectural software. I would say, but it's still like a software that I would recommend you to have a look at. So it's called Blender. Uh, maybe I can write here Blender and you have also, it's all it's for free. You'd like download it in a second and you have loads of tutorials on YouTube for this. Okay. Now, although this is, uh, I personally would like to ask, so, uh, uh, like you said, of course, that Blender is a software that, uh, you know, comes close to fluid forms, but architecturally, if you, if you, in your personal take, have to choose a software, which has done the best to come close to Maya and it's, you know, graphic quality, if I may call it. Which one would you recommend? Like architecture that is not Maya then, but wants to do what Maya does. I think Rhino, Rhino. Hey, we have a few more. We're just waiting for the questions to pop up coming across. Okay, yeah, we have another one. Uh, where to begin the fluid modeling journey? Um, I would say begin with understanding nature, especially, and not and don't look at nature as just a source of aesthetics at all. Uh, look at nature as the way it evolves, and especially look at the parametrics inside of nature. So a couple of books called uh, Nature Follows Form or Form Follows Nature, something like that. You will see nature in, from the point, point of view of mathematics and from the point of view of parameters. And that's usually extremely connected to fluid forms. Uh, fluid and organic allows nature to live longer uh, for a reason. And that was one of the biggest sources for Zaha to understand organic structures okay which is a bit like nature is nature is is a, a mega structure that evolved 
in time longer than us humans have. So this kind of gave a lot of hints for the next kind of structure. And that's why the structure is uh, usually extremely fluid from Zaha. So I'll start from nature. Now we'll start understanding why is nature fluid? What kind of parameters are inside of nature? And don't look at it just as an aesthetic. Okay, that's something that's really important. It's the biggest challenge is don't look at things just aesthetically. Understand why is it standing up? Why did it survive? And why did the species change so much? So look at nature differently. And I think that's a good start. Right. So we have a bunch of more questions that have popped up, Mariana. So we just quickly go across then. Uh, so there's a very sweet message that has actually also popped up for you. It says that, hi, Mariana, as always, your presentation transcends me. As this is an unreal world, are there any real life parameters that you would take as a challenge in your design, as in the design that you're creating for the wilder world that you said? So yeah, that's the question. That's a great question. And I think that's the, the question that architects should ask themselves the most, which is what do we want to take from the world? And at the same time, like we look at Web3 and we think there's like a billion of possibilities and there's no obstacles. First, from the point of view of engineering, there are a lot of obstacles, unfortunately. So the the digital world is still very much dependent on the physical world. So if you're, it needs a big server, it needs a big computer, it needs a big storage. So all of this um, works as a constraint in the digital world. Digital world is not truly independent. It's very much dependent on us and uh, the kind of computer you have even and the kind of server you can allow for the metaverse. So this means that it constrains your design a lot. So if your design has, I don't know, uh, 2000 polygons, you will wait uh, this much to a project that has a thousand of polygons. So your project, you'd want it to be like in the world, the real world, to be repeatable, to be standardized, to be everything like the normal architecture. Because if you repeat it, you can turn it as instances, which means that it doesn't weight anything. It doesn't have, it's not heavy to your computer. So they, the most thing that they ask me the most is, is this repeatable? What, what part of the project can we repeat? And it doesn't weight anything exactly like architecture. Uh, so that's a big obstacle that there's no, there are a lot of limitations. And then what I want the architects to think about is what we do we want to take from the real world that will help people to navigate in the digital world. So what kind of typologies do they need to recognize? Because we learn how to navigate in streets and we know what a road is, we know what a door is, we know what a window is, we know what a corridor is meant for. And if you go to the metaverse and you go absolutely dystopian, uh, people would not know how to navigate in it. They would not recognize, and at the same time, they will not create any links to this space. So they will not feel a bedroom as a bedroom. They will not feel a home as a home. They, especially, let's imagine, concert halls are easier to understand of the metaverse because it's a public event. I think that will be quickly uh, something that will will come to the metaverse quite quickly. So you'd have to, you could see your concert like from your house, and maybe a lot of people could see the concert from your house and from your VR. But you'll have to understand what the stage is. Where is the stage? And we need a little bit of traditional uh, links of our physical world and digital world. So you understand how, how things happen. And you also feel like a link to it. So I think that's something that architects should really think about because we are not doing dystopian art. We are still doing architecture. Okay. So uh, we have a bunch of, uh, I think it's quite similar. So I'll just, uh, in one uh, question, ask it out there. How should architecture students start preparing for being, you know, uh, what they're calling metaverse architects? <laughs> so how should they start preparing? What should be their journey? I think that one thing that is important is people don't have to be part of the metaverse. You are part of it if you want to, uh, which is like very important. Not everyone should or not everyone really wants to be. I think I'm, I'm very happy to know that people want to stay on the real architecture because it still needs to be... a developed uh, right so it's important to have good people designing good buildings still but i think what's important for a metaverse architect is to understand if you are a designer and what's your interest on design so do you want to be a designer on metaverse you have to look for softwares that really enable you to push the boundaries of design because we don't want to just copy and paste the real architecture to the to the digital one we want to bring a step further, not too far, but just one step further, especially in design and softwares. So I think I'll, I'll start by that. 
ओके ओके नाउ विथ प्रोजेक्ट कमिंग अप इन coming up linked the line in saudi arabia do you think that the meta world may soon be something we will be looking to realize or is it truly only for virtual purpose and flexing our creativity i think that um what is more important i think it's the most important strategy for us architects and this is literally just a strategy is to create projects that are meant for what we call mixed realities okay so it's a project that it can and it should be part of the metaverse but uh, you can still uh, make it buildable so whenever you have let's say a competition an architecture competition you lost your competition um and you're running for i don't know competition in in the real world okay and you lost it but you really like the project you take the project you probably give it a, a different twist so it's a little bit more challenging and you can include it on the metaverse so we are kind of making our business twice as interesting and uh, profitable than when we were doing just the real you can multiply the options of your building that lost and will not serve for anything else you give it a purpose and probably will profit from it and um and then i also believe that a lot of projects should stay on the metaverse i think the line is another one it will be a super cool metaverse project to have is it really a project that is looking at social um criterias in the real world i don't think so i don't think it's addressing any social and uh, quite the opposite i think it's a test and um if it's a test put it on the metaverse there's no need to be testing in the real world with a real footprint uh, especially in environment okay uh one last one uh, which actually this question has been going around in my head as well which, which is more interesting according to you of course building in w3 or in real life um it depends on who you asking obviously so there's no like there's no real answer no personal you know personal yeah but personally personally i'm extremely mediterranean okay i'm portuguese i'm from a, a small country that deals with a lot of palpable things and uh, techniques so i think that in my soul i'm still very much mediterranean i still prefer to get my hands on a site and the construction site and i think that in the future i hope to be able to have both uh but i think my heart is still on the on the sense of touching but um let's see how this goes thank you so much mariana that was one of the most thought provoking sessions that we i think i've ever heard Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm mean, honestly, my head has been blown into a different perspective altogether. I mean, of course, we have been hearing about the metaverse, and yes, we read about it, but of course, this was something that was a revelation. Thank you so much for coming and showing us this perspective, showing us what we were missing out and what is in store for all of us as residents, not even just as architects. Exactly. Exactly, as global residents as well. So thank you so much and uh, yeah I, I I cannot thank you enough for the It was my pleasure thank you it was a pleasure being here Okay and to the audience guys we'll be joining again with another session very soon uh but till for now uh, this is where we finish the session but please do not like leave you are uh, free to just we'll be taking a very short quick 15 minute break and after that we have a very interesting uh, video session Uh, by Bjark Engels, so you would definitely not want to miss that. So, joining you in the next maximum five to ten minutes. Don't go anywhere. <laughs>